Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. We are super happy to welcome Bill White, currently based out of Berkeley, California. Welcome, Bill. Hello, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, delighted to have you. Where, where are you joining us from today? Well, right now I'm um, visiting uh, my family and friends and doing a little bit of archaeology stuff in Boise, Idaho, which is uh, territorial ancestral land of the Shoshone people. But I live in the Bay Area, ancestral land of the Muwekma Ohlone people. So you know, I think it's important as an archaeologist to acknowledge where we're at and where this heritage all begins and who are the rightful and uh, long-term um, stewards of the heritage and the sites and the lands that we live on. We so appreciated you reaching out to us, our, our little podcast, and, and you've been podcasting for, for quite a while, and you reached out with some really well thought out, comprehensive points about what we're talking about, which really amounts to race, equity, uh, the history of archaeology, decolonization, and all these big, big topics. But what I really appreciated in how you reached out was these big topics you personalized and you spoke about them yourself as a black archaeologist in the States. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an interesting experience, huh? <laughs> yeah, and definitely not not one that we have any any relationship to. We are both of settler origin, white archaeologists, mm -hmm. and it's lovely to get other perspectives. We we need them. Yeah. I mean it's it's definitely a um like a different way to look at it. And also just it's great to see this stuff kind of happen. Uh, you were mentioning, you know, the COVID times that we live in, but probably one of the best things that happened is that a lot of people did actually go online. I mean, for years we had been buying these phones and laptops and we had, you know, Skype and all this stuff. And we never really actually, in fact, used it because we were still leaning on the old face-to-face -face that was, you know, moving at the speed of whatever face-to-face -face interaction does. And so then since the pandemic, the only way we could keep moving forward and maintain community is to use these different platforms. And so what's cool that I've seen is that, you know, a lot of people of color, a lot of archaeologists in general have been really, you know, hopping on the uh, Zoom, you know, platform and recording talks and putting together, you know, uh, webinars and discussions. And those things have actually started to trickle into journal articles and stuff and, and into the bylaws of some of our archaeology organizations. So in some ways, I feel like, going this direction really helped us. It helped us use things that we already had that we weren't fully using. Now we're using them a lot more. I think in the process, we've we've kind of been able to push some of these issues and learn and grow because we're no longer limited by, you know, the annual conference or the, you know, once per project meeting where we all get together and plan the research design. Like now we're just talking all the time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, globalization has some has some good things. <laughs> it has some good aspects to it. Um, and I think it's much better because these conversations can happen in a much more regular and informal way because when we go to a conference and present ideas, whether we like it or not, it's usually a bunch of white faces in the room. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what ends up happening. And so I think that, you know, uh, so first of all, a little bit about myself, I do uh, practice, you know, historical archaeology for my field work, but my main job now is to teach at the University of California, Berkeley. So it's a, it's a transition from doing cultural resources. I used to do that for, you know, 10 times full time. And then based on contracts and stuff, you know, now I'm an assistant professor. So the, the game is a little bit different, but in the historical archaeology field, especially with the Society for Historical Archaeology, the last 10 years has been a lot of change and, and, you know, a lot of growth, I think. And, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen just, you know, recently come together, like they just announced the new board of directors for the Society for Historical Archaeology. And there's like myself and three other black archaeologists on the board. And there's other people of color that are on there. And this is an organization that has overwhelmingly like 90% white practitioners, right? And the Society of Black Archaeologists that I'm also one of the founding members of, that's grown from like, you know, eight people to, you know, 80 something individuals who respond to questionnaires that we sent out. So that's not even all the people, right? Now there's more than 100 people who remember that. That's not just purely uh, African-Americans. That's all archaeologists who are interested and want to become members, right? So, So there's been these changes that have happened in the last 10 years. And now we can really share what's going on because we're using these platforms. Yeah. And I mean, and related to that, I, I would offer, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the reasons this, this change is happening in, in the um, Society for Historical Archaeology is because of the session that was hosted by Liz Quinlan back in January 2020, where there was a, a, a mature white professor who used a Nazi phrase and salute during the mm-hmm. opening session. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, talk about the power of Zoom, right? Because you're talking about last Society for Historical Archaeology, the the conference was virtual. So um, all the sessions, you know, and that's another thing we can talk about, but just the kind of portability and flexibility of these virtual sessions is something that we really should think about building out further. But Mm -hmm. the, the incident you're talking about at the plenary opening meetings, uh, one of the instructors has been doing, uh, you know, a professor that's been doing archaeology for a long time, has trained a lot of archaeologists who have moved on to leadership roles and stuff like that, uh, but had a, an identity, I guess, his own students say maybe he's a little bit prickly, is this person who's older in years and was on Zoom and is really, you know, I, I in some way, I don't want to defend the guy because what happened is not good and the, the response is what he actually deserved, but um you know, he was really concerned about the society not going to the in-person conference that he's known for years and years and, you know, was one of the people that was really concerned that no one would come because of the, the virtual and didn't want it to be canceled. And so, you know, was kind of talking out of turn at about something that wasn't really the topic. And then Liz Quinlan was saying, well, that's not really what we're talking about right now. And if you'd like to just wait a little while and the guy just kind of freaked out. And of course, evoked Nazism, because of course, you know, when someone of that race and age is corralled in any way, obviously you're being a Nazi if you say them to not do something or to not disrespect a woman or whatever, you know, then immediately you're policing them. Therefore, you're immediately a Nazi. And the guy on Zoom in front of a room of like 80 something people all in the session used a Nazi salute. So... When it happened, what's crazy as being a black archaeologist, when this kind of energy comes from one of those old timer archaeologists, there's this like deep meditative blank thing that happens in your mind where you just kind of stare at them 
but their words really sound like that peanuts voice and, and snoopy when the adults are just like where 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 so then you, you just kind of like look yeah. at their face so that they don't get mad that you're looking away and then your mind just goes blank to another space like oh it's happening again don't worry it'll be over just breathe whatever they're saying doesn't matter so you just kind of like blank out and if you look at the screen like the other black archaeologists that are on there they're doing that they're just like oh god another one doing it again like uh, okay you know this will soon pass over like a wave so i wasn't really paying attention to what the guy was doing when i was watching it live but my kids were there my kids were watching on tv with me and they were kind of like what's going on like why is that guy yelling at her and i go yeah son you know let me tell you something about the folks that are our grandparents right they're not all savory characters and they don't always respect us and they don't always act the way that they should to our colleagues. And you're just seeing that, son. Like one day you're going to be in a job and there's going to be someone who's older than you who will do the same crap to you because that's kind of just what ends up happening in the world. And then later on, I saw on social media that it was actually, you know, a Nazi salute. And even when the guy was caught on screen, and fortunately, because of what happened at the Society for uh, American Archaeology Conference, when they let someone who's been convicted of uh, sexually harassing students be in the same room at the conference as those people who went through the full Title IX torture to get this person convicted, you know, the, the SHA took action real quick and was like, oh, that's not going to happen at ours. If anyone does this at the conference, here are the rules. And they immediately just enacted the rules. Once the guy did it, you know, he's removed from the conference. The case was adjudicated. And I think he was no longer a member of the SHA because of that, or he's been put on probation. And it went even further, fortunately. The, the push was even further, and the, the person took a retirement, which didn't come soon enough, I guess. You know, if he'd retired before this, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But, so that's what ended up happening. But even when it was all happening, I was kind of thinking like, eh, nothing will happen. This happens each month. You know, these white old archaeologists, they just do this stuff. This is just one of the things and just like a volcanic eruption, you just let it happen and then you stand back and dust the ash off and get back to your life. But I mean, something actually happened this time. And it is entirely reactive. Like we're talking about these things in the past tense, which is great, but it, it's the reaction to it that helped to redeem the organizations. But it, you know, these people had a place already and I'm sure it wasn't the first time. I mean, someone who breaks out a Nazi salute <laughs> in a plenary who, who had been known yeah. as being prickly, it does cause me to consider mm. what kind of discipline are we promoting that this kind of behavior has in some way or form been tolerated for a long time and that Black, Indigenous, people of color have had to adopt a persona of let it wash over me. Because seriously, if you if you let it get to you, you know, that's one of the things it just stays in there in your mind and it's difficult to get out. And then it starts to damage your health through stress and other stuff. Right. So, right. You know, my first of all, you cannot police other people's actions like mm -hmm. they, they will act as they have been grown and accustomed to act. And so someone like this, like that's just a natural reaction for someone who feels that they have that privilege in that position and they're able to just get away with whatever they want. And so there's no way you can like stop one of these folks from doing it, nor should you really even try because it's, it's like you standing in front of an avalanche and then trying to hold back all the snow to keep it from, you know, just let them fall down the hill. But the key is don't let them get back up on the pedestal where they were before. When they fall down, right. they need to stay down a little bit and pay a little bit of attention to what's going on and be a little bit more introspective about, you know, how they should behave around 
the next generation, right? Because con- being concerned about the upcoming conference, that's one thing. Being concerned about the existence of the organization is another thing. And then being concerned about what kind of behaviors you are telling other people is okay and passing on to folks. That's an entirely different question because you're talking about, you know, industry-wide culture uh, and the way that people feel that they should be able to and get away with, uh, you know, when they're of the senior category rather than, you know, mentoring and cultivating people to be good citizens. Well, heck, this guy was a hardcore jerk or prickly or whatever. I get to just do whatever I want. No, times change. That's not what we're, we're not doing that. We're not modeling that stuff anymore. I wonder, like, does CRM have a particular role in kind of modernizing the the larger archaeological discipline? Is it like a different role in CRM? In in Canada, and particularly in BC, we have a, it's, there's a division between CRM archaeology and academic archaeology. And Mm -hmm. both seem to feel that they have a different role to play. All this stuff in the United States is broken. It's all stuff that was built like 50 to 100 years ago. And then we don't even have people with like backbone and ability to handle the problem. So it's just left to us citizens to try and solve it on our own. And when it comes to uh, CRM, I, I have a feeling that in the very near future, universities are b- basically going to have to partner with CRM companies and CRM companies are going to just have to like train their people straight up, handpicked from the universities, uh, and then just like guide them through a system where they get the degrees so that they can do the work. There's starting to be some uh, research that shows that depending on where you're at, you're more likely to get paid more doing CRM as a project manager or crew chief with a PhD than you would for a lot of assistant professor. For example, if you become a PI or a um, project manager in the state of California, I guarantee you, you're going to be more money than assistant professors in like 40 of the other states. I can already tell you that right now. And uh, as far as like job security in a place like New York or California or Arizona that have historic preservation laws, you know, you're going to have work. Like a lot of projects are going to run through CRM compliance. And so you have a greater chance with experience and a graduate degree of job stability in one of those states than you do uh, in, you know, being an assistant professor in a red state where they're cutting away tenure and they don't want to hire anyone and you're forced to adjunct at like five universities. So why do you think that is? You know, academia costs money. And CRM has the potential to generate money. So, you know, CRM companies, because of the way that, you know, laws are set up in the United States, in a lot of different places, you know, you really need to have some kind of compliance done. You know, there's a lot of projects like the state of California, some would say is overloaded with cultural resource regulations. But then you can look at a place like Arizona that also has really strong historic preservation and archaeological protections in their in their laws. And so in those situations, like you want to build something, you got to have skilled people. Like, you know, you want to build something, you're going to have to have an architect do the design and it's going to have to pass code and all that stuff. If you want to build something, you know, in one of these states that have protections on the environment, you're going to have to make sure you're not destroying endangered species and stuff. And that, those laws, you know, they're, they're intact. And in a lot of states, we're voting for even more environmental protections. Um, So there's even more chance for there to be historic preservation in those states, right? So you have the potential to have a job as long as the state is building stuff. Whereas in academia, you know, like it just costs more and more money for the states. They're not putting the, the money into them that they used to. Uh, you can't raise tuition indefinitely. And uh, professors and all their benefits and stuff like that, they cost money, but we don't necessarily like generate income, right? Because 
they can put together a bunch of online platforms and modules that students can fill out and call that a bachelor's degree. They don't even actually need us to sell Mm -hmm. the generic degree, but they need us to sell the experience of learning and getting the degree. They've discovered that and they've discovered that there's enough desperate PhDs that have been told over the years that they must become a professor. Otherwise their whole life is a waste. And they were told all that stuff by professors who, you know, what we can talk about what we're spending our lives on and how valuable that is to the world. But, uh, there's a lot of people who just have put every single thing into thinking that their whole life worth is based on being a professor and they're willing to just do whatever it takes, no matter how bad of an economic deal or how stressful or how bad it is for their lives. Like these universities, they're able to just continue existing, just taking labor from desperate people. But you need the universities to teach the students so that the students can become employees in CRM. That is true. (laughs) It's a catch 22, right? Yeah, you would think that the state would would see that, like the importance of training to to make more students. Yeah, I mean, you got to like look at the United States in general. (laughs) (laughs) Can our politicians see anything? (laughs) Or are they just only staring into their phones at what people said on Facebook about them, right? Like it seems like... Or Twitter. Yeah, do do they know about mathematics, right? Like... Do they understand really kind of anything? So, yeah, I can totally see how they only just look at numbers. And then if someone says a thing about numbers and they're not actually, in fact, like educated themselves, then they won't make good decisions. And I'm not saying every politician is that way, but we just don't really always have critical mass. It seems like they're just flitting around emotionally, right? So we're in these situations where everything costs more and our, we're not using our taxes to take care of things like healthcare or you know, make sure that people have, uh, you know, affordable education. So folks out there who are applying to professor jobs, I'll tell you this, I got turned down. I don't even know. I got one interview, one chance out of 10 applications I made for tenure track positions, including a lot of adjunct positions. I didn't get those. And I got turned down for a lot of community colleges and a lot of state colleges. And a lot of times they didn't even send me a friendly rejection email. They just ghosted me fully. But all of the CRM companies were interested and it didn't matter. Virginia, Washington state, Arizona, California. When I wrote a resume to them with a PhD and 10 years of CRM experience, they were like, Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, we're really interested. So if you're a PhD out there, you're thinking about what to do. Just know that PhDs are extremely rare in CRM and they are absolutely generic and ubiquitous in academia. And they will treat you that way in academia, but they're not going to treat you that way in CRM. I can tell you, no one gives a shit that I have a PhD in CRM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very different here. Totally different here. So first of all, it sounds like I'm bagging on higher ed, but I'm, I'm actually not. We can do a better job of like giving people that experience, that learning, engaging experience, teach them about, you know, these broader topics, including, you know, theory and how this stuff connects to a wider world, while also having them apply that stuff in kind of simulated exercises that mirror what they will actually do after they graduate. I really think that we can do that. So the Society of Black Archaeologists, you were one of the founders. You can get in a network of people who will support you when you're in these academic departments. They're not really helping you with your degree or, you know, you can get emotional support and like work through the network to find sites and to get expertise and to get advice and so it's really kind of turned into our own like emotional support group to help each other. And I think, I think that's probably the thing that 
we're doing archaeology and everything, and we're helping students as much as possible. But just knowing that you can go into our, you know, quarterly meetings and talk to folks and be part of our reading group and read reports and things on different parts of the world, be part of a discussion. You can also build your own writing group to encourage yourself to write more when you're a student or just, you know, be able to talk about what's going on in your department, what's going on in your life, along with other people of color who can recognize that, like what you're going through. And a lot of archaeologists that I've talked to are like, man, I wish I was I wish I was part of that group. And I'm like, join it. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Just, yes, mm -hmm. you also have problems too. Like you're an archaeologist. Like we support each other. We love you and we love each other and we love ourselves. So like, you know, we're, we'll support, you're part of the group. Join the group. Join, we're on Zoom, right? We're, we meet at conferences. Come on by, we'll hang out. That sounds like a lot more support than what uh, some of the membership get from the SAAs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say about the SAAs. I will say nothing until I have tenure about the essays. That's probably smart. There's a lot to well, be said that can be said about the essays. One of the things I will say about the SAA is that the whole universe that they are operating in is changing. And the world that we are seeing right now, no one has seen in 9,000 years. We have never seen social and environmental change like this. And, you know, as archaeologists, we look back and say, oh, this is a revolution. And in this place, they were growing crops. And over here, these mammoths died out and all this different stuff. We're not putting together the huge, like, overhaul that human society had to go to make it into the world that we live in right now. And that's exactly what we're facing right now. It's not a, there's no two degrees centigrade. There's no, you know, anti-racist, any of that stuff. It's society transformation. And it's really picking up real fast. They can stay in the old pith helmet archaeology, or they can try to join us who are figuring a new way in the new world, right? And I, I know those ones that stay in the old archaeology. Uh, right now, the existing structures are not supporting the old archaeology. You know, universities, museums, that kind of stuff, they're, they're on the brink, right? And uh, enrollments in the anthro programs are going down. Meanwhile, people are more interested in the History Channel and all this other stuff than ever before. There's more people caring about history and caring about their ancestry and stuff than ever before. Well, we're building a huge fan base of people who want this because in this time when everything's changing, knowing who you are can give you just that tiny bit of relief to keep going the next step. When we start to actually be real about this thing and be pragmatic about what's happened to all of us, it wasn't really a bunch of Europeans who were wrangling all these African folks together, right? And when we go to Africa, they don't open their arms wide and all these things as if we're part of their tribe, right? We're, we're Americans. Mm -hmm. They don't. So the, the mythologizing the African homeland is really just mythologizing. We should be pragmatic about the fact of our beautiful people all around the world and our origins and all of that stuff, while also recognizing that in a different time and place, things were completely different. And that's how we ended up in North America, right? Things were completely different for people in Europe. And that's why people ended up, in, like, I mean, in my class on African diaspora archaeology, we talk about the kind of life that someone in Europe would have lived that would have enabled them to even think it's okay to enslave folks, right? And specifically talking about, like, corporal punishment, public execution, um, the different class system where people were regularly maimed and injured by upper-class folks, that men regularly hit women and beat them, beat children 
that children were forced to work to death. That people just left their children. That people lived on the streets and had nothing to eat and were put in jail and forced to work until they died in Europe. And it wasn't just some. We're talking like tens of thousands of people. And those are the people who are still in Europe, not the ones who went to the colonies. Uh, once you start to realize that like the punishment that they're doing to people of color and Native Americans, those kind of genocidal acts, were also, they were doing it to each other already for hundreds of years. That kind of mindset was already in people's minds, right? Like the mindset of Native folks is not what we see on advertisements and stuff. You know, it, it is, it's the real reservation. Like it's real people. It's people living in California that work at the UC, the full range of every expression you would of a human being, right? That's what it means to be Indian. That's what it means to be black and white and everything. Starting at that point, right? Like thinking about that first. I think that a lot of times that kind of changes, you know, it can, it can cause a bad reaction for some people who they don't want to think about it. It can also make some people say, well, you know, you were, you're guilty too. And it wasn't just only us. I'm not asking you to think about me. I'm asking you to think about you. The key is to just start listening first. And I mean, your ears are on your own head. So start listening to your own self, right? Like what's going on in your mind and your heart and your body. Start there. You know yourself. You're with yourself all day and all the time. Just that simple step right there already changes the whole way that archaeology is even practiced, right? If you have people who are actually kind of caring about their own body, that don't want to see it get broken down, that don't eat painkillers and think it's like, you know, a, a rite of passage to have the first hernia, stuff's not good. Guzzling a bunch of alcohol and watching your life just decay. Like I'm 42 years old, man. A lot of the people that I started off with are in a lot of physical trouble with their body. And I don't think that consuming alcohol has helped them very much. Eventually you got to start thinking about what you're doing to yourself, eating at gas stations, living this kind of life, stressed out in a precarious career. Like eventually you got to kind of think about it. And so the first step is, you know, like, is it, are you getting what you, what you always dreamed out of archeology? span And if not, is there anything that you can change? Thank you, Bill. If we can ever help by pushing the needle in the conversation, that's, that's our aim. Thank you so much for reaching out to us and for being so generous in your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.